I'm Rachel Quetno, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Upzoned, the show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I am not Abby Kinney. Your usual host is on vacation this week, so I'm Rachel Quedno, Program Director at Strong Towns. Abby has graciously allowed me to sub in and host in her place. Um, I hope I do the show justice. My guest today is also not your usual guest, Chuck Marone. Instead, I'm joined by John Pattison, Content Manager for Strong Towns. John, how are you doing? I'm doing well. This is intimidating, being on this show with such illustrious normal hosts, like regular hosts, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, but you've been on the show before, right? No, I haven't. I've avoided oh. it because of pressure. Okay, debut. Well, very exciting. So today we are talking about sports stadiums, specifically the newly proposed Kansas City Royals baseball stadium. And we have an article from MLB.com that talks about how the city is considering moving their stadium from their current location at the Truman Sports Complex on the edge of town to a potential downtown location. Team owner John Sherman is quoted in this article as saying, quote, Wherever we play, the criteria will be that the process will result in meaningful community impact that is real and measurable. It will result in economic growth and economic activity that benefits this region in a real and measurable way, end quote. So this is the usual sort of feel-good language that is used to talk about any major new development, I think. You know, it's going to bring jobs. It's going to boost the economy. It'll make our town better. But will it? I think that is the question. And I'm going to ask John for his perspective in a second, but I think just to lay things out from what I know, you know, on the one hand, a downtown stadium does have the potential to revitalize a neglected area, can bring in a lot of people who patronize restaurants, um, stay at hotels, and just like brings life into an area. I don't think in Kansas City, they've zeroed in on a specific spot yet. But on the other hand, stadiums naturally bring with them like a bunch of parking. So you have to contend with that occupying, you know, really valuable land in your city. Uh, Professional stadiums also because of the kind of top down nature of the industry and the size of these sorts of projects, they tend, at least from what I've seen, they tend to bring in a lot of other big businesses with them. So like fast food chains, you know, national store chains, Um, We're less likely to see like a beautiful main street full of local businesses crop up organically around a stadium. And it's more likely that we'll see, you know, kind of a plug and play row of chain businesses. So if this big development with loads of parking and fast food is going to happen, wouldn't it make more sense to stick that in the suburbs than on really high value and important land downtown? I think that's, that's one thought. And then of course, Besides considering the impact of the stadium, like on the city, there's also the equally important question, in my opinion, of who's going to pay for it. And in most professional sports stadium situations, um, this is not just the wealthy owner or the MLB footing the bill. They usually want a bunch of public money as well. And do we want our taxpayer dollars going to this? So I think I'm showing my hand on how I feel, but uh, let me pass it off. John, I know that you have strong feelings about this situation because you are 
a native Kansas Cityan and a huge Royals fan. And earlier when we were planning out this episode, I asked you your perspective uh, about this whole situation. And you said, um, definitely 100% do it. Like use all the public dollars. I'm in like whatever we got to do to get this beautiful new stadium. No, I think you were joking, but uh, tell us your thoughts and like, how do you wrestle with this being a Royals fan? Yeah, it's tough. So what happened was about a week ago, there was a press conference where uh, the owner, John Sherman, was really announcing a couple big personnel changes. But he was asked in the press conference, as he is often asked, about the potential for a new Royal Stadium downtown. And he said that they are considering their options. There's some reasons why this is an urgent conversation right now for the Royals, and maybe we'll get into that. And then he said that if there was a new stadium, it would almost certainly involve some level of public funding. I almost immediately started getting people sending me the the link to this story, almost daring me as a Royals fan to, <laughs> to you know, to be inconsistent with with what I believe about professional stadiums and and who should be who should be paying for them. I think in one of the notes I sent you was this reminds me of the meatloaf song. I would do anything for my love of the Royals, but I won't do that. I can't be inconsistent when it comes, certainly when it comes to publicly funded professional stadiums. This is likely to cost, I've seen estimates anywhere from like $700 million up to well over a billion dollars to fund a new stadium downtown. It's likely that a major portion of that would have to come from the taxpayers. The taxpayers are already subsidizing renovations that they did on the existing stadium, Kauffman Stadium. Back in uh, 2006, uh, a bond was passed that that raised local taxes by 0.375% in Jackson County. They're still paying for that. To come back and, and ask them to foot the major part of the bill to build a new stadium in downtown Kansas City is uh, it's just not not workable for me. And from what I've seen, I haven't seen any new polling uh, since, the, you know, in the, over the last week. But historically, most Kansas Cityans have been against the idea of putting a stadium downtown. I'm, I'm curious if, if that has changed at all in the last couple of years since those polls were done. Why do you think that is? They cite some of the reasons that you have already talked about, the need for massive amounts of parking and the fact that there's already a perfectly beautiful stadium i mean it certainly has its its issues which we can get into uh if you want but Kauffman Stadium is the sixth oldest stadium in the major leagues it's also consistently in the top 10 of the most beautiful it is a gorgeous gorgeous stadium it has its problems as i said but the idea of of taxpayers funding a stadium that Kansas City doesn't necessarily need is just not something that a lot of people are ready to go along with. And that whole, like, you know, they have a great stadium already. I'm sure that there are a bunch of upgrades that people are saying, you know, are necessary, but I feel like it kind of goes along with this American attitude of like, well, if we're going to do like so much, you know, updates, you know, why not just throw it out and make a completely new one? And that's a really frustrating and like not financially sound approach. Mm -hmm. And that really is the choice that the Royals as an organization are facing. Their stadium is going to be 50 years old in two years. It was built in 1973. Yeah, so it's going to be 50 years old in a couple of years. 
They did $250 million in renovations before the 2009 season, $225 million of which were funded by the taxpayers. As part of that agreement, they extended their lease in the Truman Sports Complex to 2031. So they have 10 years essentially to figure out if they're going to do another set of renovations on Kauffman Stadium or build a new stadium. And from what I've read, it can take up to five years to design and build a new stadium and can take about that long to to figure out the financing. So there is a little bit of urgency as the Royals organization decides where they're going to be after 2031. Yeah. So you're on the record as saying, keep it where it is, renovate the existing one. What do you think? I'm on the record for that, especially if it involves public dollars. I'm not 100% convinced that it shouldn't be done if it was completely funded privately. Now, there are all kinds of other concerns about, about where it would go. Most of the locations that have been talked about, that certainly that I've seen, are all on the east side. They are all in or very close to historically redlined neighborhoods. And so mm-hmm. there is the very real possibility that a new stadium and everything that would come along with that would negatively impact neighborhoods that have already experienced decades of disinvestment. It reminds me of the article that Daniel wrote a couple of years ago about the trickle or the fire hose. Mm-hmm. My concern about even a privately funded new stadium in or near one of those neighborhoods is catastrophic money. Yeah, really dramatic change for sure. So I have a lot of thoughts on downtown stadiums because where I live in Milwaukee, we just got a new basketball stadium a few years ago, which the Milwaukee Bucks just won their first NBA championship in 50 years in. But our situation was a little bit different because we already had a downtown, uh, or I guess it's not a stadium, it's an arena or whatever. But anyway, the space was already downtown and they were just like, we need to build a completely new one, basically next door to the existing one. And it was all the same claims about like jobs and revitalization, a bunch of public money went into it. Uh, And basically the city was held, I would say they were held hostage over it because the NBA said, we're going to bring this team out of Milwaukee if we don't get our new stadium, basically, which is, uh, I mean, they're a private organization, so they can do whatever they want, but it's pretty messed up in my opinion. So now we have it. It was legitimately built on like an, a vacant lot. Um, I believe it's where a former, like a highway used to go through the city and they like capped the highway. And so it was just like this huge vacant lot where the highway used to be. So it definitely did breathe new life into that space. And there's like a lot more people down there. There are some local businesses, but at the same time, like, is that worth it for the amount that taxpayers paid for it? It's not really popular here to talk bad about the stadium because they just, you know, they won that championship. It was huge. And like, you know, sports is basically religion in America. So this is like more challenging to criticize, I think, than you know, when like a huge, like when Amazon wants to build their huge warehouse in someone's city, it's a lot easier to be like, okay, big business, get out. Um, But sports, like everybody loves sports, right? I don't have a problem with a fancy new stadium, but I just don't get why the public has to pay for it, especially when the people that own these teams are so rich, like they could definitely afford it themselves. Yeah, you bring up an interesting point about essentially Milwaukee being held hostage by the NBA 
about the need for a new stadium. Because when you look at many of the, the most prominent studies that have been done about the economic impact of professional sports stadiums, it's a little bit different for arenas like basketball arenas because they can be used in the off season for more things. So some of the studies that I've seen, basketball arenas, hockey arenas, they're often talked about separately from baseball and football stadiums because those tend to have... There have been a bunch of concerts in this one already. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, true. So you look at, at, if you look at the studies that have, that have been done on the economic impact of sports stadiums, again and again, you'll see, and these are studies that are done across the political spectrum, you'll see that sports stadiums almost never live up to the economic development hype. Not surprising to hear at Strong Towns. <laughs> exactly. That's, and that's when the team stays in town. But there have been examples just from within the last five or six years of football teams that have moved from one city to the next, leaving the city, the old city, and the taxpayers on the hook for tens of millions of dollars of debt from stadiums that are no longer being used. This happened in St. Louis when St. Louis, the, the Rams moved from St. Louis to Los Angeles. At one point, I don't know what the where it stands now, but as of a couple of years ago, St. Louis was still on the hook for like $140 million in, in debt and maintenance costs on the old stadium. It happened when the Raiders moved from Oakland to Las Vegas. Uh, I think Oakland was still on the hook for something like $60 million of debt on the old stadium. That's obviously not being used in the way that it was initially intended. And a little footnote, about the Raiders moving to Las Vegas, in order to accommodate the Raiders, Las Vegas built a $1.8 billion stadium. I think half of which or more, maybe not half of which, but I think like $750 million of which was paid for by the taxpayers of Clark County, Nevada. It kind of makes me sick to think about that. Clark County just had to dip into its reserve funds to make a debt payment on that stadium because tourist dollars have been low since the pandemic. You just you're putting yourself in such a fragile position when you're betting that kind of money on a single project. Yeah. This is like the same thing we talk about when we look at things like convention centers or like other huge buildings that basically can only be used for a few specific things. Like so rarely it does that math financially like pencil out. It just, yeah, the idea of building something for millions and millions of public dollars that's only going to be used like a few days a year. And then something like the pandemic comes in and like totally, you know, shuts it down and yeah it does not seem like a good financial choice didn't you write something last year about the amount of money that was spent in was it milwaukee for the democratic convention and then of course all of those folks didn't come yeah i did write about that i have to jog it's, in the it's obviously not, not a new stadium project but it's still the idea of the silver bullet project that is this this big this big project that's going to mean a windfall for the city and oops, it didn't pan out and we spent all this money. I don't know. Can, can the Royals still play successfully in a updated version of their current stadium? Well, I think the Royals think, play John? successfully wherever, wherever they go. Cause they're, 
They are. Because they're so amazing. Because they're so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, that, of course, one of the reasons why people are, I didn't mention this earlier. It's not just about, oh, the, the Royals have a perfectly good stadium. They have a beloved stadium. There are things that are absolutely wrong with this. I've, I'm working on an article about this for the day before. I think it's, I think it's going to be published the day before this podcast goes up. And I described Kauffman Stadium, which wasn't called Kauffman Stadium at the time. But um, when the Royal Stadium was built in 1973, in some ways, it's kind of like the – in so many ways, it resembles the suburban experiment. You can only really access it via automobile. It's out in the middle of nowhere. They've really had a hard time developing anything around it for a variety of reasons. It has a massive parking lot that it shares with the Chiefs, the Chiefs who played Arrowhead Stadium right next to, to Kaufman. And so that, that massive parking lot is emptied the vast majority of the time. And in fact, I think Daniel, our, when he was working on our series on Kansas City, I think that he calculated that you can fit one-fifth the population of Kansas City in that massive parking lot. <laughs> the problem is that, like the parking lot is even like for the Royals only used between April and October. And even then only when they're in town. So it's kind of this single use function. There are a number of things wrong with where Kauffman stadium is located. And so people who fans who are used to going maybe to other sports and they're used to they're they're used to making a night of it. You know, they maybe they're gonna go to a restaurant beforehand, they're gonna hit a bar afterward, they're gonna do some shopping. This is really popular. One of the ways that that sports teams are making a lot of a lot more money these days is essentially by becoming real estate developers, by buying up all of the land around their stadium and then using it for the shops, restaurants, um, and other amenities that you mentioned, there really is not an opportunity for the Royals really to do that out where they are. And that is a problem. And so a fan who wants to go to a Royals game, what are the, what can they do before the stadium opens? Really, all they can do is take advantage of that parking lot. And so tailgating is what you do. And it's what you do when you have a parking lot. <laughs> yeah, you do make a good point that there is a a beauty to a downtown stadium and like makes it way more accessible by transit or, you know, even walking or biking if you're close enough. And like thinking about some of the beloved baseball stadiums, Rakeley Field, Fenway, um, even like the, the only one of those that I've actually been to, um, the, oh, what is it called? Target Fields, wherever the twins play is like in this, downtown space and you get like the beautiful view of the city while you're watching the game. Um, and those are really special. So I have not been able to bring my kids yet to a game at the K as Kauffman stadium is called. I can't wait. In fact, we had plans to do that in the summer of 2020. That was our hope was to take the kids from where we live in Oregon now, uh, to Kansas city to see a game at this stadium where I have so many awesome, just incredible memories I look forward to that. If the Royals build a stadium in downtown, it's not like I'm going to boycott it. I think it would be a pretty good experience to see a game with the Kansas City skyline, a night game with the Kansas City skyline lit up in in the back. I think it would it would be it would be beautiful. Parks like you know the Pirates have a park like this. 
Uh, I think they have similar parks in San Diego. You mentioned Target Field. Uh, Atlanta, I don't know if Atlanta has the skyline. I can't remember, but they have a kind of a whole village built around around the stadium. And that's that is kind of the the trend right now. One way or another, we're gonna make a big event out of it. And I just don't think the public should be paying for it. As you said, the it's like there's a there's a prince and the pauper joke to be made from from this Royals themed uh, conundrum. John Sherman, when he bought the team, Back in 2019, his net worth was uh, over a billion dollars. The team's valuation today is somewhere about a billion dollars. I don't think that the paupers, so to speak, should be paying to subsidize the princes. Certainly not a new castle for the princes. Well said. Let's close out here, switch gears to the down zone, which is the part of the show where we share anything that we've been watching, reading, listening to. What's that for you lately, John? This is as much pressure as anything else because Abby and Chuck always have such interesting things here. But really, the the only candidate that I could come up with is this uh, book that I've been going through. I don't know, don't know how widely interested people will be in this, but it's a book called Eyes of the Heart: Photography as Christian Contemplative Practice. Oh, that sounds right up your alley. Yeah. But around the start of the pandemic, I picked up photography as a hobby and I've absolutely fallen in love with it. And one of the benefits of photography has been that it's helped me see better. I've never been like a very visually aware person. I'm the guy who like we hang a new light in the house and somehow I, I don't see it until four weeks later. Photography has me seeing details a lot better. And I, I kind of had this hunch a while back you know, is there such a thing as contemplative photography? And I did some research and sure a number of people have, have explored this. And I found this book and it's been really fun. It's broken up into eight chapters and each chapter has these different exercises. And so in chapter one, the exercise is called 50 images in one. And it starts by you taking 50 images, you taking 50 photographs of an everyday object, something you interact with all the time, but maybe don't give a second glance to, and you photograph it from every angle. You experiment with different backgrounds, different different light, just to see it in a new way. And I did this with a red pencil sharpener on my desk, and it was really, really cool. That's the 50 images. And then the, the and one part of the exercise is then you take just one photograph per day for the next five days. I did this exercise. It was a lot of fun. I actually plan to do it regularly, almost as a, as a kind of a tune-up to make sure that I'm, I don't know, receptive to the surprisingly beautiful things around me. Uh, anyway, I, it's, been, it's been a ton of fun. What about you? Well, first of all, I wouldn't worry about that being too niche because I feel like Chuck is always sharing like weird World War something history books, Roman, I don't even know. So... Okay. Yeah. True. True. Second of all, you only picked up photography at the start of the pandemic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For our listeners who don't get to see our Slack chats every day, John is always sharing these amazing photos. You can probably follow him on Instagram if you want to see them yourself. But like amazing, really skilled, beautiful photos. I can't believe that you've only been doing that for like a year and a half. That's yeah. Yeah. It came out of left field. I'll include a picture of. Uh, my pencil sharpener in the show notes Thank or like you. In, in the, in the post that accompanies this, this podcast. 
you'll see a, a picture. Sounds good. So what I would like to share is actually sort of cheating, but um, I'm going to share the collected wisdom of our colleagues, which is um, our Friday faves. For people that don't know, every Friday on the website, we run an article um, and we also email this out. So if you're on our email list, you'll get it. Um, or you can go to strongtowns.org slash email to subscribe. But we just share collection of links to stories. Sometimes it's like podcasts or videos or whatever um, that each of us on the Strong Town staff have been reading or watching or paying attention to in the past week. Um, it's always really fascinating. And it's been a cool way to get to know our colleagues too, like, you know, I, I doubt very many people outside of our team uh, who interact with Strong Towns have probably not interacted with Linda, our our bookkeeper, but um, she's always sharing like really interesting links. And I feel like I get to know her through that. So I recommend if you're not already reading our Friday faves, um, you can catch those every Friday on our website or in your inbox if you're on our email list. Yeah, I like that one. That's a good one. Well, thanks everyone for bearing with this um, B team subbing in for Abby and Chuck. Please tell them that we did a good job. Triple A team. Let's keep it connected to baseball. We're the triple A team ready to be called up at a moment's notice. Okay. Yes. I'm going to pretend I know what that baseball reference means. (laughs) And also shameless plug. Don't forget to listen to my podcast, the bottom up revolution, where we share the stories of the strong towns movement in action with inspiring guests doing Strong Towns work all over the country. So thanks everyone for listening to the babblings of me and John. Really appreciate it. And I hope you get out there and build Strong Towns. Thanks everyone.